if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 3. If by chance you don't have a Bible, then um, pull out those notes that are in the worship guide that you received when you came in. And the main verse, we're going to look at one main verse this morning, and I've printed that verse in there. So even if you don't have a Bible this morning, you shouldn't feel too left out. Galatians chapter 3, though, is where we're going to look specifically at verse 13. Last Easter, we had an opportunity at Brook Hills to look at the, the, the picture of the gospel in adoption and how adoption helps us to understand the gospel. We, Heather and I, were fresh off the plane from Kazakhstan, bringing our son Caleb home from there. And uh, needless to say, um, the last year, since last Easter, things have changed radically. I don't know, I don't know what your week was like. I got thrown up on four times. So this is the, uh, this is the journey of adoption. Um, so that was last year. What I want us to do this year is I want us to look at the picture of forgiveness. And I want us to think about forgiveness and what it means and how important forgiveness is in our lives. Before we dive into the Word, I want you to watch a video clip with me. And this clip is going to set the stage for our time in God's Word just to give you a little bit of background that leads into this clip, this is a man sitting on a hospital bed facing cancer, facing impending death, and he is having a conversation with a chaplain. This man has been a doctor in his life and is talking at this point about how he unknowingly killed an innocent man as a doctor. And I want you to listen to their conversation and pay particular attention to the questions that he asks. Watch this with me. An ultimate question that undoubtedly affects every single person in this room. How can I find forgiveness? Do I need to find forgiveness? I would submit to you this morning that there is no more important question that we will face in this life. And I know that's a bold statement, but think about it with me. Let's assume that there is a God. Even if you're atheist or agnostic, you would at least have to admit that there's a possibility that God exists. So let's start there. Let's just assume there is a God who is completely good completely just, infinitely good and infinitely just, such that he is dead set against all that is not good, all that is evil, all that is wrong, has no place whatsoever in his presence because he is good. Let's assume at the same time that we are not all good. You and I are not infinitely good. There is at least some level, let's assume, of evil or wrong in us. Maybe we think we don't have as much as other people, but let's at least assume that we have some level of evil or wrong in us. If this is true, then it poses the ultimate question of the universe. How can evil people be in the presence of an infinitely good God. 
an infinitely just God? And as soon as I even throw that question out, I realize that there are red flags that go, go up across minds in this room. What do you mean evil people? I mean, we're not as bad as we could be. And it's at this point that I want to offer a much different answer than the chaplain in this clip was trying to offer. And I want to say some things based on the authority of God's Word to show you some things here that in the end may even be somewhat offensive. And I want you to know from the very beginning my goal is not to offend. My goal is to encourage, but to encourage with truth when it comes to this ultimate question. And that question brings us to Galatians 3.13. Listen to what it says there. You can read along in your notes or in your Bible. Christ redeemed us, the Bible says, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Is forgiveness possible? Do we need forgiveness? Based on this verse, I want to put three truths in front of you. We're going to unpack each of them. They're in your notes there. We're going to fly through some different parts. But I, I want to put these three truths in front of you as all-important, glorious, difficult, yet eternally transforming truths. Number one, based on Galatians 3.13, we are all under the curse of God's law. We are all, every single person in this room, young and old alike, we are all under the curse of God's law. The key word in Galatians 3.13 is curse. You see it three different times. Cursed, Christ is renewed from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. It's written, curse is everyone who's hung on a tree. It's used twice in Galatians 3.10. It's really the, kind of the theme word of this section of Galatians. It's a multifaceted word. It's expounded in a variety of ways throughout the rest of Scripture, literally meaning afflicted, doomed for destruction, damned, cursed. This is not a, a good thing. And this verse is saying He redeemed us from the curse of the law, which implies that we're under the curse of the law. We are all under the curse of the law. Now, what does that mean to be under the curse of God's law? And this is where I want us to unpack it in a few different ways. Help us understand what the Bible's teaching here in Galatians chapter 3. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that we are guilty before God. We're guilty before God. We all, every single one of us, has an awareness of right and wrong, a law, moral law, so to speak, written on our hearts. And it's the way we know the difference between right and wrong. Now, there are a lot of people in our culture today who would try to debunk this idea by saying that right and wrong is open to your interpretation. And you determine what's right and wrong. You're the arbiter of what is right and wrong. And something may be right for you and not right for me, or wrong for me and not wrong for you. It's all up to our own interpretation. And that clip really exposes the fallacy of that kind of naturalistic worldview because if that were the case, then what do you do with rape or murder or stealing? Is this really open to interpretation? We know. This is the way we live our lives based on the fact that there is right and wrong, and we all know, I'm not saying that every single issue we face is, is black and white, it's easy, but there is a law written on our hearts, a moral law, and we all know we have done wrong. Every single one of us has broken that law. As a result, stands before God guilty as lawbreakers. 
That's why Paul, the guy who wrote Galatians, said another place, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who does good, not even one. In fact, he says that the more we try to obey the law, the more it exposes the fact that we can't keep it all. We are guilty as lawbreakers. Number one, guilty before God. As a result, number two, we are condemned by God. We're condemned by God. The law condemns us as lawbreakers. Now, as soon as I throw that word out, I know that uh, Easter Sunday morning is not taking the direction that we were hoping it would take. I know that there are some of you who are thinking, Don't you, hasn't this preacher ever heard of John 3.16? Like, just preach on that. Like, it's better for the whole family as we come together. God so loved. Now, this is true. This is true, John 3.16. You go two verses later, though. Listen carefully. Don't miss this. This is not, you don't see John 3, 18 plastered on football stadiums when you, when you span across the TV because it says Jesus came, God sent Jesus because the world stood condemned already before him. This is why Jesus came, because we are condemned by God. Now, that sounds a little harsh, condemned by God for breaking the law, well, we've got to realize that the law is a reflection of the very character of God. And so to break this law written on our hearts, to be guilty as lawbreakers means that we have committed an offense against the lawgiver. And we are condemned by God as lawbreakers. That leads to the third truth that takes it even a step deeper. Not only are we guilty for God and condemned by God, but we are separated from God by one sin. Mind you, the, some of the thought in Galatians 3 where people were thinking, well, we're not that bad compared to others. We don't have as much wrong or evil in us as others do, and so we're okay. What they missed is the fact that the effect of sin, don't miss this, the effect of sin is determined by the one who is sinned against. The effect of a wrong is determined by the one who is wronged. Let me illustrate. If you, uh, if you sin against a rock, you are not very guilty. If you sin against your spouse, you are very guilty. If you sin against God, you are infinitely guilty. He is infinitely good, and one sin is an infinite offense in His sight and creates an infinite chasm between you and God. We are separated from Him forever. Now, we hear these things. We are guilty before God, condemned by God, separated from God, and immediately our, our pride wells up against that. Who are you to say that we're guilty and condemned to use those words to describe me? Which leads to the very next truth. Our pride is set against God and set against His truth and His law. Our pride is set against Him. That's what Paul is addressing primarily in Galatians 3. It's a pride issue. There were people who were living in their self-sufficiency thinking that they were not guilty before God, condemned by God. They were acceptable before God based on what they did. And it was a pride issue. They assumed they could measure up. They assumed they could make their way to God. And this was a thinking in the first century when Paul wrote this book called Galatians, and it is alive and well, this kind of thinking, in the 21st century. Even the probably the most common question aimed at the Bible and at Christianity, only one way to God 
How can you say there's only one way? There are many, many, many different ways to God, aren't there? You don't have to have many conversations in Birmingham or, or see many conversations on Oprah to hear people talk about how there are many, many different ways to God. It's arrogant to say there's only one way to God. Do we realize that the core of that question that so many of us have asked and so many of us have had asked of us, do we realize that the core of that question is a pride issue? I am convinced that if there were a thousand ways, we would want a thousand and one. The issue is not how many ways there are to God. The issue is our autonomy. We want to make our own way to God. And what the Bible is teaching is you can't do it. You can't make your way to God. Absolutely nothing you can do can get you to God. And our pride is set against that. We are self-sufficient, self-confident, self-esteemed people who think we can, and the Bible is saying you can't, and our pride is set against that. As a result, not only is our pride set against God, but our hearts become hard toward God. The more we try to bring our self-sufficiency to the table, the more we try to measure up however that looks in each of our lives, the more we resist our need for God, the harder and harder our hearts become. Many of you know this. Many of us resist talk about God, talk about church, because we know our hearts are growing colder and colder and harder and harder toward God. And our self-sufficiency and our pride keep us there. And that's the road we continue on until, and this clip illustrates it so clearly, until something happens in our lives that jars us awake, whether it's sitting on a hospital bed or any number of other circumstances we face in life, we come face to face with some ultimate questions and we begin to wonder about some ultimate answers. And so at this point we realize, come to the conclusion that is so clearly depicted in that video clip, not only is our pride set against God and our hearts hard toward God, but our lives are hopeless without God. Our lives are hopeless without God, and we wonder what's going to happen in the future. We wonder what that's going to look like. We realize our hearts are hopeless without Him. Now, I realize when you put all that together, it's not the most encouraging picture you've ever seen on a Sunday morning, especially on Easter. It's really an offensive picture. Truths, these truths are an affront to us guilty before God, condemned by God, separated from God, your pride and your heart set against God, and hopelessness without God. In fact, I, I'm fairly confident that many preachers, if they had looked last night at the outline that I'm putting for, before you this morning, they would have said, whatever you do, do not preach that on Easter. Why is that, do you think? Why do, we, why do we not want to hear these things? Here's my guess at why. I'm convinced that the devil himself would take no greater delight than in bringing groups of people to this place today where a show is put on in front of those groups of people that in the end ignores the fact that God is infinitely holy 
and infinitely good. And sin is infinitely offensive in his sight. And his wrath against sin is infinitely just. And the life of every single person in this room is either headed to everlasting joy or everlasting suffering. I'm convinced the devil himself would like nothing more than to blind individuals across the room of these, these truths, this reality. I'm convinced the devil himself would love to convince scores of people across this room that this, this truths are not for you. They don't apply to you. If I can just make it through this morning, get on with the rest of my day, to think to think this, this guy, whatever he's talking about, doesn't really make sense, doesn't add up. I want to say before you, as boldly, as clearly as I possibly can, based on Galatians 3.13, we, every single one of us, including myself in this room, we are guilty before God. We are condemned by God. We are separated from God. Our pride is set against God. Our hearts are hard toward God, and our lives are hopeless without God because we are all under the curse of God's law. That's truth number one, but truth number two is this. We are under the curse of God's law. Truth number two, and this is where I I hope you see the goal is not to offend. The goal is to encourage. We are under the curse of God's law, but second, Christ came under the cross of God's judgment. Now we're getting to the beauty of Easter. Christ came under the cross of God's judgment. If we do not go through this first set of truths, we'll never get to the glory of these second set of truths. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We'll never know what it meant for him to redeem us until we know what the curse of the law meant. So we've seen that. But he redeemed us from it by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, this is incredible, curse is everyone who's hung on a tree. Now, what he's doing right there is he's quoting from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Take you back there in your minds to Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and here's the deal. The way it worked was if someone committed, when someone committed a particularly heinous or serious crime, a crime that deserved the death penalty, then that person would, would die as a result of their crime. And then what would happen is they would take that criminal's body and they would put it on a pole or a tree. And all day long it would hang there on the pole or the tree as a depiction of the shamefulness of sin of the seriousness of sin, of the wrath of God on sin. This was a picture, and you can imagine it was a very clear picture. You don't want your body hanging on a tree. That is a picture of the curse of God. That's the Old Testament. So when you fast forward to the New Testament, the New Testament is talking about how we're under the curse of God's law, deserving of God's wrath, condemnation, and judgment. Paul reminds us, what Deuteronomy 21, 23 says. And he brings the cross into the picture and he says, remember, cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. Don't miss it. This is not an accident, ladies and gentlemen. This is not just happenstance. God, in his infinite wisdom, ordained that in the first century we've got this picture where the Romans have devised a cruel form of execution called crucifixion. Where Someone is taken and beaten and mocked and scourged and spit upon and then nailed 
to a tree, nailed to a cross. And God chooses this, the most cruel form. Not even a Roman citizen would be sentenced to this. The worst, the vilest of criminals and crimes. God chooses this to be the route by which he comes to the earth in the flesh and he walks and he goes to a cross and he is nailed to that cross. A picture of the shamefulness of sin. A picture of the wrath of God on sin and says to the world, you want to see the seriousness of sin? You want to see the shamefulness of sin? You want to see my condemnation on sin? Look at the cross. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. This is why some of these Jewish background believers in Galatians just couldn't buy into this cross picture. Jesus dying on a cross, he would never do that. But the reality is, this is the beauty of the cross. At the cross, Jesus takes all of these truths we've seen in us being under the curse of God's law, and he applies them to himself. He becomes a curse for us, literally in our place. And so when you and I should experience the shamefulness of sin, the cross is the picture. It shows us that Christ has taken the shamefulness of sin, our sin, upon himself. And at the cross, he addresses all of these truths we've seen in the first half. So on the first half, we are guilty before God. At the cross, Christ has covered our guilt. He covers our guilt. Here we stand guilty, cursed, and Christ steps in the plane of human history, the wonder of it, steps in, lives a perfectly sinless life, never once breaks the law, setting him apart from every single person in all of history and qualifying him and him alone to be the sacrifice for our guilt. If he had one ounce of guilt, then how could he pay the price for our guilt? Instead, he goes to the cross. And don't miss it, ladies and gentlemen. The storm of God's judge justice that was aimed directly at your soul and my soul is now stopped with the umbrella of God's mercy, the cross of Jesus Christ that prevents us from experiencing one drop of God's wrath. What a picture. Christ covering our guilt. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He covered our guilt. Not only did he cover our guilt, but he endured our condemnation. He endured it. This picture, Christ redeemed us from the curse. What does that mean, redeemed? This is a beautiful word in the New Testament. Redeemed is the word it was used to describe how in ancient Rome, every day human, human beings were brought to a slave auction block to be auctioned off. Slaves to this person or that person, slaves for this purpose or that purpose. And the only way a slave could be set free is if someone would pay the price for their freedom. And the word that was used to describe that was redemption. Redemption literally means to pay the price to set someone free, to purchase freedom. And this is the picture. This is the picture the Bible uses to describe what happened at the cross. When you and I, Paul said at a different point, stood there as 
slaves sold to sin, Christ redeemed us. He prayed the price to set us free. What was the price? The price was His life, the very life of Christ. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. He endured condemnation for us. He experienced the death that was due us. Leads us to the next truth. Not only did He cover our guilt at the cross and endure our condemnation, but He suffered our separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness covers the earth as he is on the cross. This picture describing how Christ himself swallowed the separation that was due you and me. Our sin, our guilt, the guilt of your sin, the guilt of my sin. Put on him in separation. Martin Luther said it best. He said, our most merciful Father seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law so that we could never be delivered from it by our own power, sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier, Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer and cruel oppressor, David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly be the person which has committed the sins of all men. See that you pay and satisfy for them all. Think of it, the multitude of sins, wrongs represented in this room alone, the separation deserved in this room alone, put on Christ at the cross. He suffered our separation. To think that our pride revolts against that, that even as I say that, that there are minds across this room that say, I didn't need that. doesn't matter to me. Our pride, every single one of our defiance in this room at the cross Christ overcame our pride with his humility. In the face of our pride and defiance, he humbled himself, Philippians 2 said, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is an amazing picture. The Lord of creation stoops to wash the feet of the created and says, I didn't come to be served by you, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is astounding truth. His humility overcame our pride and we have hard hearts. How does the cross address that? It's at the cross where his gentleness overcame our hardness. His gentleness overcame our hardness. You remember what Isaiah 53 said? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. His gentleness. What a picture. Conquering not by force, but by humility and gentleness. Jesus comes on the scene overcomes our pride with his humility and our gentle our hardness with his gentleness and then ultimately ultimately when we stand before God hopeless without him his death overcomes our hopelessness his death overcomes our hopelessness you realize everything changes at the cross everything changes at the cross and here's why 
at the cross of Jesus Christ, he stared death in the face. Death itself, the ultimate penalty and punishment for sin, the ultimate destiny that every single one of our lives in this room is headed toward. And Jesus succumbed to it. And for three days, death held all hope in its sway. But ladies and gentlemen, I remind you the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to every person in, within the sound of my voice. Hear these words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law under which we are cursed. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the ramifications of that. Cancer, where is your victory? AIDS, where is your sting? Car accidents and heart attacks, where is your victory? School shootings and senseless murders, where is your victory? Tsunamis and tornadoes, where is your victory? Pain and suffering, grief and loss, sorrow and death, where is your victory? You have no sting, you have no victory, because cancer, you do not have the last word. And AIDS, you do not have the last word. And tsunamis and tornadoes, you don't have the last word. And school shootings and war, you don't have the last word. Heart attacks and car accidents, you don't have the last word. And grief and sorrow and pain and sickness and disease, you don't have the last word because Christ has the last word. The one who was cursed of God and hung on a tree is now exalted as the glory of God, the risen King, and he has conquered death and all of its effects. This is the picture. And because of him, because of him, atonement is possible. Because of him, forgiveness is possible before God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how deep it is, no matter how thick it is, no matter how dirty it is, the beauty of the cross is at that place, he took on and covered your guilt. He endured your condemnation. He suffered your separation at the cross. This is the beauty of Easter. We'll never get there until we realize these mammoth truths about our guilt and our condemnation. But when we see them, we see the wonder and the glory and the beauty of the cross. And we find ourselves laying all of our pride down. All of our pride. And saying, I need the cross. Pride has no place at the cross. has no place whatsoever, which leads us to this third truth. And it's the application of Galatians 3.13 to our lives. We stand under the curse of God's law. Christ came under the cross of God's judgment. What this means for every single person in this room this morning is we now stand within the grasp of God's grace. We now stand within the grasp of God's grace. Which when you realize that first set of truths, you wonder at this third truth. And the way I understand Galatians chapter 3, is this text puts three options before us in this room this morning. And you've got them there in your notes. I want to invite you to consider with me how this 
text, this truth, this verse applies to your life. Option number one that we have from Galatians 3.13. We can ignore the curse that is talked about here. We can ignore the curse of God's law. And by that I mean we can take that first set of truths that we are guilty before God and condemned by God and separated from God and our pride is set against Him and our hearts are hard toward Him and our lives are hopeless without Him. We can take that first set of truths and say, I don't believe it. I won't accept that I am guilty before God or condemned by God. I just don't buy it. And we can continue on in a pride that says we don't need God with a heart that says I don't need God. That's one option. We can ignore the curse. Second option. We can work to overcome the curse. We can work to overcome the curse. Now, here's what I mean by that. Second option is we can take that first set of truths about being guilty and condemned and separated from God, and we could say, I believe these things. I believe each of them. But we can fail to go to that second set of truths. We can say, I believe the first set, and as a result, I'm going to do whatever I can to change this. Now, as soon as I say that, I know that many of you are thinking, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone embrace guilt and condemnation, and when Christ has done this, not, not go to the second set of truths? It does seem a bit ridiculous, but... Here's the thing, please listen, this may be that moment for many people across this room. I am convinced that the majority of people in our church culture are choosing option number two. I'm convinced there are scores of people in this room who are choosing option number two. And here's what I mean by that. I'm convinced there are scores of people in this room this morning who hear these truths about being guilty before God or condemned by God in sin, and you think, yes, I know that. I've heard that before. It's nothing new. I realize that. Scores of people who realize that and scores of people who may even believe in God and may even believe in Jesus, that he died and he rose from the grave. You may even believe that. But scores of people who never make it to that second set of truths. Now don't get me wrong, they say they have, they say yes, I need Christ to forgive me, but the problem is we say I need Christ to forgive me and I'm going to work to gain God's acceptance. And so I need Christ and then I need to pray and I need Christ and I need to study the Bible and I need Christ and then I need to go to church and I need Christ and I need to do these things, be a good mom and be a good dad and be a good husband and wife, Christ and these things and then I'll be acceptable before God. And the reality is as soon as we add one thing to the work of Christ then we have missed the whole point of the cross. We missed the whole point of the cross. It is not salvation. It's not Christ plus what you bring to the table. That is pride. That is saying you can still do something. And the cross undercuts pride at the core and says there is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do to please God, to be acceptable before God. You need Christ to do this in you. 
Christ and Christ alone. Only Christ can save you. You can't do it. And yet scores of us are living like we need Christ and these other things. And this is not salvation. It's not salvation. And you see the hold. You see the hold of the adversary the devil has on so many lives like this. People who believe that they are guilty and condemned in sin and live in a state of guilt and live in a state of condemnation. People who feel like they are in a hole of sin and they can never climb out. They try and try and try, even trying through church and maybe Christ here and there to climb and climb out, but never feeling like you're out of that hole. Working to overcome the curse. And I'm convinced Satan delights in reminding that you are condemned and reminding you that you are guilty and leaving you there to try to figure out how to address that on your own. That's option number two. You can continue to work to overcome the curse. Option number three is this. We can ignore the curse. We can work to overcome the curse. Or number three, we can embrace the curse. Embrace the curse and run to the cross. Now, what do you mean by that, embrace the curse? Here's what I mean by that. Look on your notes. Look at those first set of truths. What I mean by embrace the curse is to look at every single one of those truths in your notes and say, yes. Yes, that is right. That is absolutely right. I am guilty before God. Not just say they're right, not just embrace them, even rejoice in them. That sounds weird. When you rejoice in the fact that you're condemned by God, how can you rejoice in that? Here's how you can rejoice in these truths. When you look at this truth that says you are guilty before God, I am guilty before God, to say, yes, I am absolutely guilty before God, but praise be to God, Christ has covered all my guilt. I am absolutely condemned by God, but Christ, praise be to his name, has endured my condemnation. Yes, hallelujah, I am separated from God forever, and Christ has suffered my separation for me. Yes, yes, my pride, I see it, it is set against God, and yet his humility at the cross overcomes my pride. He alone can overcome my pride. He alone can sever the root of pride and self-sufficiency in my life. So yes, yes, my heart is hard toward him, but praise God by the blood of Christ, his gentleness overcomes my hardness. And yes, absolutely, my life is hopeless without God. But by his death, he has overcome all of my hopelessness. Embrace the curse. Embrace these truths and let them drive you to the cross. That's the picture of Easter. We're intended to see the depth of sin in our hearts and in our lives, maybe this morning like we have never, ever seen it before, and let the depth of sin embrace it and let it drive you to the cross and find that there he has covered your guilt, endured your condemnation, and he has suffered your separation for you. And so I ask you this question this morning, very simply, 
We are under the curse of God's law. Christ came under the cross of God's judgment, and we now stand in this room in the grasp of God's grace, within the grasp of His grace. Are you, one, are you going to ignore this curse? Pretend like it's not a problem. Number two, are you going to work to overcome the curse? Or number three, are you going to embrace that curse and let it drive you to the cross to trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation?